Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and my heart has just been shut up to this passage dealing with Jesus and Gethsemane. And I want to read verses 36 through 39. Well, actually, I'll just read two verses, verse 36 and verse 39. And we're, we're dealing with going farther into Gethsemane. This is still part of this series on prayer in Gethsemane. And I'm hoping the Lord will show us some things about ourselves Verse 36, then comes Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, saying unto his disciples, sit ye here while I go yonder and pray. Verse 39, he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So let's pray. Father, for a few moments, as I unburden my heart, I pray, give us revelation and insight concerning these passages. And more than anything else, Lord, take us further and deeper into these areas of prayer as we come to know your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The life of Christ has not been one that was without a lot of events. There's been joy, there's been envy, we've had conspiracies and all kinds of difficulties. And I've oftentimes wondered when I've read the Gospels how he could do so much in a day or in a meeting, you know, teach so long a period of time, heals so many people, see so many children that just rushed into his presence. But then I came to realize after studying these episodes and looking at his life in detail that all of these things happened in between those prayer meetings in his life. He had a relationship with God. Jesus was not the kind of person that shied away from the presence of God, but he wanted to be close to him. And he was so close to him that he said, I only do those things that please my father. The words that I speak to you are not my own, but come from my heavenly father. There are very few of us that say such a thing. And if we said it, it probably wouldn't even be true. But when Jesus thought the thoughts that he had running through his head, he was thinking the thoughts of God. But there were moments, I'm sure, where he was driven by circumstances into the presence of God. And, and this is what we have here. He gets up at the Last Supper. He puts a towel around him. He gets down and he washes the feet of every disciple present. Judas is numbered amongst them. Our Savior gets down and washes the feet of the man he knew was going to betray him. I wonder how many of us could do that. And then Jesus even extended his cheek to allow this man to plant a kiss on there. But Jesus set an example for us in rising up from that particular 
dinner, he made his way to a garden where he often prayed because he knew that his hour had come. That's what John 13, 1 says. Compelled by circumstances to go into the presence of God. What lay down the road? Betrayal. He knew that while he was in that garden praying that Judas was betraying him for a few pieces of silver. This man was gathering together a crowd. Jesus was with his disciples trying to pray through, getting ready for the cross. But Judas is behind the scenes doing all of these things. And Jesus saw it. He knew it. That's why he told Judas, what you're going to do, you do quickly. So I believe that as, as Christians, that, that there are times that the Lord shows us what lay up ahead, what's down the road. And when you can see what's coming, and it's inevitable that it will come. Sometimes you're driven into the presence of God to pray because you know as well as I do, there are some challenges, some trials and tribulations that you won't endure or come through except you pray through. You've got to be able to talk to God. Well, Jesus knew that ahead of that that cross, he's going to have to deal with the loneliness. All of his disciples forsook him. The scripture says Mark says it explicitly. All the disciples of the Lord fled. They left him standing there with that mob. But yet in all of that loneliness, the man of God maintained his integrity and walked with his king. Have you ever felt that way, felt alone? I I think about parents that have only had one child. Then something happens. They've got to stand at that graveside and bury that child. Heart is broken, knowing that that child should never have died before mom and dad. I think about people who've been married for 40, 50 years, been married so long they can't even remember what it's like to be single. Then all of a sudden find themselves by themselves one more time. Think about the ones that finally find a good fellowship, good church, establish good relationships. Then because of a job or promotion, somebody moves away. Feel like I don't have anybody to talk to anymore, to call. Despite the loneliness that Jesus felt, he still went to that garden. And loneliness is not going to prevent you from facing the thing that you have to face. In Jesus' case, it was a severe trial and judgment and a cross. But he came into that garden because he knew if there's anything he needed to do, he needed to pray. Prayer will prepare you for what's up ahead. People oftentimes talk about how our nation is degenerating, how bad it's getting. However bad it's getting, I'm telling you, the only way the church is going to persevere, somebody's got to pray. Somebody has to have a relationship with God, be in the presence of God so that the king can do what he wants to do. So the Lord comes into the Mount of Olives. There are hundreds and hundreds of trees in this garden on the Mount of Olives. You come down out of that temple, come down the hill, walk across the brook, and there you are climbing that mountain now. Nothing but olive trees. Some of the olive trees have been there for centuries. And certainly that garden has been providing olive trees and olive oil for the temple and for the people in Israel for a very long time. And it's in this place that Jesus comes with his disciples often in order to pray. Now, now what is it about these olives that are so important? Well, let, let's remember that the oil was necessary to keep the lamp going in the tabernacle and in the temple. But do you realize in order to have the oil, the olives have to go through a process. 
So first thing's got to happen. Those olives have to be harvested. Somebody's got to gather them all up. That season, it goes midsummer right on up into December as we understand it on our calendar. But the ones that are ready in the early season, in, in August, September, those are the bright green ones. Sometimes people wait for the later season and they go for the black olives. But all of them, are con- they consist of about 65%, 70% moisture. Nothing but oil in there. But they collect all of those olives. And in ancient times, took it to a mill and they would put all of those in there. And whether somebody had a big rock or stone that went around or somebody got in there and slushed around with their feet, that stuff turned into paste. Once it became a paste, then they mingled water with it. And then they had a whole process where they turned those olives and the paste and the water separated themselves so that the water or the oil went straight down into another kind of basin or pot where they collected it. By the time the oil gets to somebody's table, there's been a whole process of change. That olive has been destroyed, that olive has been crushed, that olive certainly has been distressed. But now look at how many people enjoy that. Look at how many people cook with it around the world. So the Mediterranean region produces 95% of the olive oil that goes around the world. But yet in this place, Jesus took his disciples. He said, I'm exceedingly sorrowful. He knew that the burden of redemption was a crushing weight that was upon him. But yet because he came into that garden, look at what his life yielded. And look at what happened because he died. Because he came through Calvary. Because he was crushed. We talk about the oil of the Holy Ghost. There'd be no oil of the Holy Ghost had he not gained the victory in this garden. But because he prayed through Wonderful things to place. So Christ, he has to deal with the burden that's upon his heart in his life. He can't shirk the responsibility of going to Calvary. Neither can you get rid of the burden that God has placed on your heart. I don't know what kind of burden it might be. God may be calling you in this season of your life to be an intercessor. He may be calling you to deeper realms and areas and aspects of prayer. like Reese Howells, people like that, George Mueller. There's a man that had thousands of kids he took care of in an orphanage and never one time told what his prayer request was to a human being other than maybe the leaders of that orphanage. But he talked to God and God may be speaking to you in this season of your life saying, look, I'm calling for you to come closer to me, spend more intimate time with me. You say, well, how am I going to make that happen? I don't know. That's between you and God. If that burden is on you, all I can tell you is whether you're awake or whether you sleep, that burden is going to be there. And the only way to alleviate yourself of that burden is by obeying God. By obeying God. If you don't obey God, I can promise you that burden will be there. When the Lord puts his finger in your heart, that finger follows you wherever you go until you repent, turn and do this or do that. Well, Jesus is demonstrating for us as believers what it means to walk with God. Now, notice verse 39. If it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prayed that same prayer again. Verse 42. He prayed it a third time in verse 44. 
Now, it's rare when we have the actual words of a prayer of Jesus. I know we've got John 17 and we have what we call the Lord's Prayer. But we're not often taken into the prayer meetings where Jesus was talking to the king. And certainly the three disciples who came into greater union and contact with him in prayer would have heard things that ordinary people wouldn't have heard. But when Jesus says, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass for me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will, to translate this into more modern language, what he's basically saying is, Lord, help me to die a death that is worthy of the calling that you placed on my life. That's what he's saying. And for us, we have to understand that's the prayer we have to pray. Lord, help me to die to self. Help me to die to self-will. Help me to die to my own personal ambitions, my goals, my objectives, my will. Let me put it all on the altar, God, because this may not be you anyhow. But once I put it on the altar, it's no longer my will, but thy will be done. God, reveal it to me. Show it to me. If you don't put it before God and put it on that altar, then God can't do anything with it. If you're trying to push your personal personal ambitions ahead of the will of God, you're going to have problems. There's no doubt about it. You know, and, and when we when we're talking to the king, it's important to make sure that we're asking God for his will. See, a lot of times we, we act like we know God's will. Now, the scripture say God's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So we know it's God's will for him to save the lost. What we don't know is what God's will is, how he's going to save them. So without that in that insight, without that light, when we're praying, God, show me how you're going to save my child. Father, show me how you're going to minister to my grandchildren. Show me, Lord, what you're going to do in this circumstance. And when you pray, God helps you to see things. That's what he does. He opens your eyes. Well, it, it's important then to look at verses uh, 39, 42 and 44. In the sense that Christ is looking inward. There are three things that happen in prayer. God has to turn that searchlight on on the inside. He's got to help you see what's in the crevices of your heart and my heart. Because if he doesn't turn the searchlight on, you'll never know what's down there. It's Jeremiah that said the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, deceitful above all things. But when God shines that searchlight on your heart, then he reveals to you what you may not have ever known before. I, I remember a preacher one time. He he said that um, there was a, a man in his church who got involved with drugs. And got so bad that he robbed his mom and dad, sold all their furniture. I mean, all of it. Just they came home one day. It's all gone. And. Some months later, that son called the pastor and the pastor heard his voice. He said, as soon as he heard his voice, something just came up in him. He was just angry, didn't want to hear. And that man said something to him. And the pastor said he just uttered something real fast. Get him off the phone because he didn't want to talk to him because of how he treated his mom and dad. Well, the next morning, that pastor had a five o'clock prayer meeting in his church every morning with him and whoever in his church would come. Five a.m. He said he was laying down there in that altar and he was praying. He said, God, help me to see myself the way you see me. He said he felt like the Lord said to him, I'd be glad to. 
I see you as a man, think you're smarter than I am. And he's just laying there saying, God, what are you talking about? He said, I had a young man call you the other night in the midst of sin. And he said, when that man called you on that telephone, you thought you were smarter than I am and just thought he was too sinful to be saved. That pastor just laid there and wept and cried because he realized that he'd missed an opportunity because he was so repulsed by what the man did. God turns that searchlight on inwardly. And once he starts showing you things about yourself, you may not always be pleased with what you see. But he has to turn that searchlight on inwardly because if he never did that, we'd always be pointing at somebody else. How many times have you heard a good message and it comes to a place in there and somebody's preaching or teaching and when they hit a certain spot, first thing you think, oh my goodness, so-and-so needs to be here to hear this. And never even thought about what God may be trying to say to you. Because we're thinking about the person that should be right here next to me. Well, God works on us in our prayer life. He turns that searchlight inwardly. If it be possible, let this cup pass. I see the cup. I see what's in the cup. The disciples said to the Lord, we want to sit on either side of you when you get to heaven. Jesus said, if you're willing to be baptized with this suffering, then you can drink this cup and be there with me. But it's not for me to give. It's for my father to give. Jesus knew what was in that cup. But when he turns that searchlight on, you can see what's in there. You can see it. But the second thing Jesus or the Lord does in prayer is he turns that searchlight outwardly. So you get a glimpse of his will. God's will. Well, things aren't always what they seem. I've learned that as a pastor. Things aren't always what they seem. But when, but when, the, when the Lord opens your eyes to what's taking place around you, then your perspective changes. So in this, this nation that we have right now, we need a church that prays so that the scales would fall off and they can see the degeneration that's taking place. We have a deceived church today. They're like the world. The world is creeping into the church like waves of water washing into the church. And it's changing the way we act. It's changing our vocabulary. It's changing our styles of dress. It's changing how we read the Bible. It's changing how we interact with one another. I've told you before that in our in our uh, legal system here in Nebraska now, you can refer to a person who has been convicted as a criminal. You have to call him a justice-involved individual. And so now that the move continues, and they don't want you to describe somebody who messes with kids as a pedophile. Now you have to call them a minor, attracted person. Well, it doesn't matter how you water down the language. It doesn't matter how you change the designation. Mama and daddy and grandma and grandpa still know it's a form of perversion and it's a sin in scripture. But the man or woman that spends time in the word and is praying through talking to God, they can see the mob for what they are. They've come to arrest Christ. They've showed up with Judas. They're willing to kiss Christ on the cheek if they had to have to just to get close enough to them. And that world will come to the church extending an olive branch. And the moment you reach out and grab it, then it arrests that church and tells that church, you will think like this. You will believe like this. You will act like this. So that light then, as God turns it in the outward sense, and we can see things we've never seen before. It helps us to understand why our nation is moving in the direction that it is. Why do Christians move away from the truth and backslide 
away from God. It's because they embrace the truth, but something over here lures them. And before you know it, they no longer embrace the truth wholeheartedly and they're reaching towards something else. And by the time they realize they grab hold of something that's false, they've already lost everything that was true. It's like that man or woman gets out in a canoe and they're sitting at the shoreline and they're rocking back and forth in that canoe and they're enjoying it. And they're taking that nap in a canoe and they lay back and that sun is all on them. They say, oh, this is beautiful. Best place to be right here in this canoe by this island. Then four hours later, they wake up. That sun has moved a little bit. And by the time they sit up, they're now a half mile away from the shore. Had no idea that with every motion in that vessel. They were moving further and further away from the shore. It happens to Christians all the time. I've seen people sit in church and backslide listening to sermons week after week. I've seen people go to camp meetings and revival several times a year and still by December further away from God than they've ever been. Somebody's got to come back to prayer, back to seeking God and believing that the mighty power of God and the anointing is the answer. He turns it outward. He shines that light on different things so you can see it now in a greater, a greater light and understand what the truth is. But the other thing that happens when we pray is it brings empowerment. Now, it's not in this chapter, but it is in Luke. Jesus prayed and an angel of the Lord appeared and strengthened him. Now, the modern Bibles have excised those verses from the passage, but it's in a good Bible. And the angel of the Lord strengthened him. So have you ever thought about the fact that when you spend time praying, that God is empowering you for what you're going to face? See, everybody in here is on a different path. We're all on the same road headed to heaven, but but we all are going to face different demons. You're going to face different trials. And we're all going to have to face different challenges. But we all need to be strong enough to be able to battle those challenges. So this is why the mighty power of the Holy Ghost is absolutely essential. I know the angel of the Lord comes along. He prepares us for what's taking place. You've got to be empowered for every trial. That means you've got to pray through and say, God, fill me with this glorious Holy Ghost so that I can live a life pleasing unto you. I want to be able to resist every devil that comes against me. Because without that power, how is Jesus ever going to overcome that cross? Yeah, I can promise you, if this man hadn't got the victory here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'd have never made it to that Calvary. He'd never made it to Mount Golgotha. And for you and for me, if we're not going to be people of prayer, I can promise you problem after problem is going to stop you and cause you to fall. You'll backslide every other week trying to get close to God simply because you won't pray. The Christian who won't pray won't have a relationship with God. Praying to the believer is what breathing is to the human. You sit there and hold your breath long enough, you'll fall over and pass out. Pretty soon you'll be dead. You don't have a, lot, a prayer life as a Christian. I can promise you only a matter of time before you end up backsliding, going away from the king. Because you cannot exist in a relationship with God if you won't talk to him. See? A marriage won't work if two people don't talk. And in this relationship with God, if I don't want to talk with him and I'm not interested in what he has to say to me, then why in the world are we calling it a marriage or a relationship? And there has to be more than just prayer over our meals. But find a place of solitude where you and God alone can pray. 
Yeah, find a park where you can go walk, spend some time. Find a little room in your house where you can go talk with the Lord. If you've got some property, walk out there on the grounds. Get in your car, drive down a county road somewhere and just walk up and down and just pray and talk to God. And don't just make a whole lot of noise. Spend time with God. Let him talk back to you. Let him whisper in your heart and talk to you about what he sees. And you'll find that the further you go into this relationship of Gethsemane, the more crucified life you'll live. We have to die to who we are. I prayed uh, plenty of prayers that, that weren't answered. Some, I'm sure, weren't of God. Some God just simply said, not today, maybe tomorrow. But I, but I do know this. If, if, if when I get to heaven, after I've been there a billion years and I have an opportunity to ask Jesus, I'll say something like this. You know, with my temperament and, and with how, what things that I love, how in the world is it you called me to Nebraska and not Hawaii? How, how in the world is that? See, Because like you, I have desires. I have preferences, but those preferences have to be submitted to his will. See? And, and when it comes to me praying about where I'm supposed to be, where I'm supposed to do and different invitations, I get to move here or do this or do that. It all comes back to one thing. Where has the cloud of God led me? And where am I supposed to be? Yeah, I, I left home at 17 and joined that Marine Corps and they sent me to Paris Island, South Carolina. I was there for more than three months. That was the place we Marines called the land that God forgot. It just was a terrible time. You know, if you, you know, I, I saw grown men weeping and crying because they'd never been yelled at like that. They wanted to go back home. Mama could wash their clothes and all that kind of stuff. But I, I left Paris Island and they sent me to Camp Johnson, Jacksonville, North Carolina. Got to Jacksonville, North Carolina. I found out the same guy that was in South Carolina was in North Carolina. In fact, carried with me the same Bible, found out the same God that that Bible was with me in North Carolina. Graduated from school. They said on my dream sheet, they said, where do you want to go? Three options. I gave three options, never gave me any of that I wanted. They said, you're going to Japan. Sent me to Okinawa, Japan, a little island that was only about six miles wide, 66 miles long. And across that island, I traveled, preached, did everything the military told me to do, but I still preached the gospel, told folks about the king. The whole time, I found out that the God of the Carolinas was a God in that island. Left there, they sent me back to North Carolina. From there, it was time to re-enlist. They sent me to Quantico, Virginia. Went to Marine Security Guard School, and, and, and part of the school was with the State Department. The other part was with, with the FBI Academy. Nine weeks, I was there. Had 70 some odd people in my class. 17 of us graduated. And from there, they said, fill out another dream sheet. You love them dream sheets. They said, where do you want to go? They said, oh, no, we're not going to let you go there. They sent me Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Well, I got to Saudi Arabia. It's hot there, folks. I'm telling you, 130 degrees in the summertime. Marines, we go out there at the embassy and we crack an egg on that blacktop just to watch it cook at 12 o'clock noon. But I found out preaching in the underground church, God was just as real in Saudi Arabia as he was the other places. Sixteen months later, they sent me to Istanbul, Turkey. I stayed there, preached all across that place, working for the embassy there from the north to the south, the east and the west. From there, got out of the military, came back to the States, moved to Jordan for two years studying Arabic, living with an Iraqi family and a Palestinian family. 
I watched God fill an entire family with the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues when I laid hands on them there in Jordan. Moved from there after graduation, went to Jerusalem, studied Hebrew, left Hebrew school, came back to the States, prayed about where I'm supposed to go. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, head to Baton Rouge. Moved to Baton Rouge, met that beautiful gal that I have now. From there, went to South America, worked with Wycliffe Bible Translators. So in love with that girl, had to come back to the, to the States. Down at the camp meeting, Jimmy Swagger, somebody had invited me to come to Nebraska. Then March of 98, I came to Nebraska and been here ever since. Now, my point in telling you all of that is to say that in all of those moves, there were places I wanted to stay. There were other directions I wanted to go. But I had to submit it all to the will of God. What do you want, God? What do you want? Because the only thing that matters is what he wants. It didn't matter what my mom wanted, what my dad wanted. I stood at that airport a thousand times and watched my mom weep and cry as she waved goodbye to her baby as he climbed on that airplane. But I knew what God called me to do. This is why I'm saying that you have to have your own Gethsemane where God wrestles with you and he deals with you. And you have to be willing to submit all of that to the Lord. And once you do, that's where the blessing can come. This is what Jesus did. So that's why Calvary wasn't as hard as it could have been. Because he prayed through here in this garden. Now the last thing I tell you is this. He said to those disciples, I want you to watch and pray. You can see it in verse 41. You can see it in verse 38. Watch and pray. Now the word watch, that's synonymous with pray. I want you to be an intercessor. Be a watchman on the wall. Consider that if a church sets up a prayer chain or if somebody asks you to be part of a prayer man and, and you commit to praying 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour, you've got to be a faithful guardsman. You've got to climb up on that wall. I don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. If you volunteer to be a prayer warrior at 2 o'clock in the morning, then 2 a.m., 2.30, that's your shift. You're on your knees. You're talking to God. You're praying. You're believing the Lord. You have to conduct yourself like you're a sentinel because you're watching for intruders. God will show you things when you pray that you'll never see if you don't pray. Yeah, I'm convinced that, that people that spend time in prayer have a lot more things that they see in their dreams, in their visions at night. I'm convinced that there are a lot more things that are visible when we begin to pray and seek God, you see, you see things from a spiritual, spiritual level. I mean, the devil tries to come into a church. The devil tries to come into a home. But you're spending your time in prayer. God makes you sensitive to that. And you can recognize here's an intruder. I see the devil trying to come in through the kids. I see the devil trying to come in through my spouse. Look at that attitude. Look at what's happening here. And as a watchman, the Lord shows you that so that you can put the trumpet to your lips and sound the alarm. Let other people know what you see. Because if you want the enemy to destroy your life, our church, your family, all you've got to do is keep your mouth quiet about what you see. That's all you have to do. But if you see things... You put the trumpet to your lips, you blow it nice and loud. You say, folks, I'm telling you right now, here's what I see. The devil is, is trying to do this. The devil is trying to do that. And when you do that, then God helps you get ready for the battle. 
Because there's certainly a battle coming. Yeah. Bible says we go from faith to faith. That means victory to victory. We go from glory to glory. That means battle to battle. No matter what's taking place, the, the, the adversary is coming at you at all, all the time. He's looking for ways. He can make inroads into your life and into mine. But if in Gethsemane we pray, who knows what God will show us? See, who knows? I could keep you here all night just telling you stories about things we've seen in prayer. Just as a pastor, you know, you know a, a pastor, if, if he's going to shepherd sheep, then that pastor has to have eyes to see what's taking place. And God has to be the one that reveals things to pastors so he'll know how to pray specifically for his or her sheep. Because you, you know from a natural perspective, sheep aren't the smartest people on planet Earth. And, and, if, and you don't think there's a correlation in the natural. I can tell you all kinds of stories. I, I watch the craziest things take place when people fall in love with the wrong folks. I see the craziest thing happen when people move here, move there. Or when people get into a fight about this or about that. Sheep have lost their minds many times. But sometimes if we can pray, God can do things. I can come into your house and you never even know that I'm there. And I can be on my knees at my house just simply praying for you, saying, God, stir up his or her heart. Stir it up, God. You know, woman of God, that Kathy is. Deal with Randy's heart, Lord. Make sure he treats her like the lady that she is. I, I can do all of that from my bedroom. Think of how much more you could do from your house. You don't have to go overseas. You may never, ever get to Bolivia. and You may never, ever set foot in uh, Qatar. But you can pray. You can pray. My grandma used to say, boy, I deal with you at the throne if you don't act right. I said, oh, we better act right then. Yeah. You, strange things start happening when she starts talking to God. You know, so we're, we're just going to act right. Amen. Amen. We don't want any trouble when grandma starts praying. And we don't want any trouble when you folks start praying. If you're going to pray for me, pray God leads me, guides me, gives me a word to say to speak fresh bread because a pastor has to have fresh bread each time he or she gets up to minister that word. Yeah. Got to be, it's got to be something that refreshes. But let's stand. I, I, I said that uh, going to be a little time of prayer. So we'll, we'll do this this way. Um, we got. Let, let's do some targeted prayer tonight. Do some focused prayer. Uh, Tina, John, come on up here.